welcome to the I Fell Over podcast. I'm your host, Oliver Broadbent. This week on the show, we have photojournalist and photographer Nick Cobbing. Nick and I met at the Skull Head, which is uh, the place where I meet most of the interesting people that come on this show. It's a Tuesday night swing dancing class, which I help to run. There's a band that plays afterwards. And when the music stopped, we all stand around and find out what we do with the rest of our lives. Nick, it turns out, is a, a very accomplished person, and we're looking forward to hearing more about what he's been up to. Welcome to the show. Hi. And as regular listeners to this show will know, uh, this is about engineering, creativity, and practical philosophy. And I want to use these three lenses uh, to talk with Nick about the work that he does. So to kick off, um, engineering is something which for me starts with the physical world and you take photographs of the physical world. So maybe you might just be able to give us a little overview of the sort of um, work that you do. So I'm a photojournalist. I was trained working for newspapers and magazines. And now I make pictures about the natural world. I travel to the Arctic and Antarctica and make pictures about climate change and the scientists making experiments to bring back data that tells us why we have climate change. And you were showing me on the fantastic map that you have on the wall of the parts of the world that you, you visit most regularly. Can you, can you just describe that for listeners? Well, we're standing underneath a, a map that is projected from the North Pole, so it's unlike other maps. It, it shows the Arctic states, um, Greenland, Russia, Canada... America and Norway distributed around the pole, looking down on the earth from from the top, as it were. And the region that I go to most often is called Svalbard. It's an archipelago just north of Norway and to the east of Greenland. Now, if you wanted to get there, how might you go? Well, the, my, my most common route is from, uh, from Tromsø in north Norway, which is a little town settlement uh, right right far on the Norwegian coast pointing out towards the Arctic and I go from there to Longyearbyen on which is on Svalbard. And how long does that take? Actually it's surprisingly short <laughs> for a journey to the Arctic it's uh, it's it's not actually that long it's uh, the Arctic's not so far away <clears throat> from us in northern Europe anyway. So um now, obviously, it's quite hard to combine uh, taking photographs of, of the Arctic with um, uh, swing dancing in a pub in Dalston. So um, you're not always with us on a Tuesday night. I'm often away. And the first thing people say when I come back is uh, from my fellow dancers is, oh, where have you been? And some of the dancers starting to realise, you know, what I do in the often they'll say, so was it the polar bears or the penguins this time, as we walk out onto the dance floor? <laughs> so um, you said that you've been taking photographs of, of, of people doing experiments, measuring climate change, and presumably the physical, um, physical evidence and visual impact of what, what's going on. Can you describe some of the recent things that you've seen? Well, often people ask me to, to say, you know, prove climate change if you like in in one photograph it's it's a bit more complex complex than that but yes the um photography can show glacial recession um, the reason we know about the shrinking sea ice is because of satellite photography from high above the atmosphere above the north pole so photography is is you know one of the key uh, ways in which we know that climate change is acting on the arctic 
you talked also about experiments. You're taking photographs of people doing experiments around uh, around climate change. What sort of things have you been seeing? Well, that, that exactly. Most of my work is, you, you could call it documentation. So I, I go out on uh, science trips. I go out on expeditions with researchers who are kind of investigating they're like the sort of ice doctors mm-hmm. if you like they're they're investigating um quite how much melt there is um when the melt occurs and and what that's going to mean for for the atmosphere and for the planet in the future and have you seen a change in the time that you've been working in this field it, it's interesting i mean the change it does act in different ways we'll be finding ourselves doing something some sort of perfectly kind of ordinary logistical planning and then realise that we can't do the thing that we did last year or five years ago. And, and often that will be a climate change related aspect of the work. So the sea ice is getting more broken in, in the zone that we work in most. And, and that's causing a lot of um, it makes it a lot harder to take ships amongst that ice. Um, Svalbard at the moment has had record levels of uh, record decline Mm. in ice over the fjords. So that means that uh, a lot of my colleagues who work in that area can't use snow scooters to to cross the fjords in the winter season. Um, They can't freeze ships in for tourists, which is something that was quite normal five or ten years ago. So, yeah, there are lots of immediately visible experiential aspects to climate change yeah i think the, the key to understanding all this is separating what is you know normal in inverted commas changes or movement and what are the the recent uh, you know introduced you know quite quite extreme changes to these environments and, and the scientists that i work with that's their that's their kind of primary objective what is what is standard seasonal variation or oscillation mm-hmm. you know the climate is has always been changing mm-hmm. seasons always changing but w- what is what is new here what what's happening that is that is more extreme um, and that is potentially climate change driven presumably you see things of great beauty yes I do and that, that's why I keep doing it yeah that's what drives me. Um, now, I think we were having a conversation in the bar a few, could have been even a few months ago, and I think you were telling me about how to approach an iceberg. Was that, was that you? Or it, how not to approach it? I could certainly tell you it could have yeah. been me, yeah, or maybe it was one of the other polar explorers that, that happened to come lindy hopping yes, that day. Exactly. I mean, you do get... They do it to keep warm. <laughs> well, you get all kinds of interesting people on the dance floor. How to approach an iceberg? Well, the first thing I should say is don't. As, as if I was working on your project as a guide, I would advise you not to. Yeah. <clears throat> and if you really do have some, you know, important engineering reason yeah. why you have to, yeah. um, you need to check that the iceberg is not going to turn or roll because if an iceberg is not uh, grounded, mm-hmm. is free-floating... Yeah. Um, bergs are losing mass all the time and if anything floating in the water loses mass from one end or one side it will compensate (laughs) to settle in the water so you could find yourself climbing one side of an iceberg 
it loses some mass from one edge and it catapults you into the sky or it drags you underwater. So Noted. I'll bear that in mind for my, my next expedition. Be careful out there. Um, now, obviously, um, this is an extreme working environment and you, you, were, you were starting to allude to earlier on some of the technology in the, the cameras that you're using. I mean, what, are the, what are the particularities of working in that sort of environment which you need to take into account as a photographer? Oh, it's interesting. A lot of people say, oh, you know, it must be really so bad. You know, your batteries must be going cold all the time and your cameras must stop working. And I, I guess that was true when we used to shoot film, when we made our pictures on film emulsion, because that was very vulnerable to, to extreme cold. But actually, digitization of cameras and technology has made it a little bit easier because we don't have these moving parts we're not transporting film emulsion mm-hmm. round and round on sprockets inside the camera um, batteries have also got gotten bigger and the technology driving batteries has got gotten better so they're pretty good like I'll, I'll talk it i'll talk in centigrade here because you probably have a european audience but up until sort of minus 25 minus 30 degrees c mm-hmm. most kit is good and then what we discovered was this sort of zone around, I think it was around minus 37, minus 38, which you don't really want to be out in anyway because of, you know, the danger of frost nip and frostbite. At that point, a lot of technology goes down. So cables were, were snapping. Um, right, it's just become brittle. Yeah, just, everything just becomes brittle and snaps. Um, it becomes very, very hard to work with, you know, a lot of material, steel, plastic cables, um, the LCD screens in all my cameras, video cameras, photographic cameras would start to sort of go into slow-mo. Yes, I can imagine the, the closing the liquid bit of liquid crystal. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Alkaline batteries are no good as well in that. Yeah, anything with a, with a, a, a liquid water component in it somewhere. Um, yeah, so you're working like kind of 10 seconds behind mm-hmm. on an LCD screen in, in minus 35 degrees C. And you don't really want to be out in that anyway because if I'm filming somebody, my interviewee would be subject to so much pain that they can't really have so much skin exposed. Yeah. So I have one, one interview which was never broadcast where the scientist I was interviewing started to develop frost nips to their face, little white blobs, um, as I was filming her. Yeah, live on camera. And in another situation, the scientist actually rescued me. I was trying to put a brave face on it behind camera, but she saw that I was starting to suffer and she just made me put everything down in the snow and took me inside a little little hut and put a heater on me. It was good she did, because putting a brave face on it is not always a good thing to do. It's good to be honest in those situations and tell people when you're suffering. Um, robotics, putting cameras on robots, flying them around. Do you do any of that? Yeah, it's becoming the thing. I mean, you know, helicopters are very, very expensive. You know, they cost sort of five, five thousand k. You know, per per hour or something upwards. It's incredibly expensive. And for like, you know, one and a half k now, you can buy, you know, quite a nice piece of kit that will raise a 
HD camera, you know, a few hundred meters up in the up in the air and give you and stabilize it as well, which is actually even better than using a helicopter and create a silent, you know, or, or not introduce uh, noise. Hmm. So the the footage I'm seeing from drones is it can be quite haunting, actually. It can be quite beautiful. I helped to run a workshop down in Barcelona just before Christmas, and it was around using drones in urban design and mapping. And there I learned for the first time that obviously drones don't just have to be radio-controlled. They are, you program them. And so they're programming paths in advance and saying, right, well, I want you to fly to this altitude, stay there for two minutes, take this many photographs, move on. Is that the sort of thing, or is there somebody sitting there with a... Well, I mean, people are already working on technology that will follow a, a skier or, or a runner or somebody, you know, walking through an extreme environment. So you could maybe you could negotiate the length of the Grand Canyon and have your have your drone follow you the whole way without needing to change batteries or, or change uh, memory cards. It's, it's coming. It's kind of exciting and scary in equal measure. I think you have to. Uh, you have to keep one step ahead. One's creativity has to stay ahead of the technology mm-hmm. because you might have a sort of creative idea and then find that the technology has stripped it of its uniqueness or, you know... Uh, how, do you, how do you mean? Well, say something like Instagram right now. Everybody, well, many people are producing, you know, the most beautiful streams of endless, you know, beautifully designed, beautifully lit photographs in on an hourly basis. So 30 years ago, somebody would have had to go out with a, you know, six by six camera hmm. shooting on film, and maybe longer, 50 years ago, and, and really, you know, really labor, really work hard to make a picture of that quality. So the, the, the tools raise the bar for everybody, perhaps. And it is a, whether we like it or not, it's a competitive environment. So that's that's actually a nice segue into one of our one of our other themes here, um, or creativity. Um, in the world of uh, well, in people just taking photographs and applying, not even using Photoshop anymore, they're just able to apply the filters that come straight away in their phone on Insta- Instagram. Um, this 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 expertise that was the domain of the artist um, is now at the disposal of everyone in their just in their pockets. Mm. So where does photography go? Um, in that context? Well, certainly from the industry that I came from and was trained in, photojournalism, it's an issue of trust. So the more that people use filters and Photoshop and technology, the more we are required as documenters to... We have a responsibility of trust and, and we have to show or demonstrate that, that what we've seen is, you know, is as cl- close to reality as it can be. I mean, obviously, there's interpretation and, and objectivity issues with, with all art and all um, journalism. But for the most part, not to, to show that we haven't, you know, tinkered mm-hmm. with the image, you know, in a way that um, starts to distort the the reality of the situation as as a as an as a naive uh, photographer amateur photographer myself many years ago i thought well you know i don't like the idea of all this kind of tinkering on photoshop with photos let's just take the picture and then it wasn't until i went and did a developing course in paris 
actually learned that what you know Photoshop is just a digital version of actually what people have been doing for years with you know, for 100 years with kind of like masking and all this sort of stuff so there's, there's um I, mean, I might have been very naive to think that well you know actually when we were just taking something with the lens uh, onto film that was definitely authentic and the digital is played around with well, and yeah, and it's it's interesting that some of the um, photographic competitions now have said that we, as as photographers, as contributors to those competitions, that we cannot do manipulation beyond what was um, considered normal in the days of developing and printing film, which which is funny given what you've just said. But you can see why they say that because they're reaching out for the nearest available constant that that puts us all in in line or, or, or holds us to some kind of uh, visual account mm. so it's sort of like a line drawn in the sand you know like yeah you've got to draw that line somewhere yes, exactly yes, you know, uh, we, we're only allowed to uh, submit things up to photoshop 2002 levels exactly that's 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 where it's going. And, you know, this is keeping whole panels of, of experts busy. You know, where do we draw that line? Where are nice, convenient places to settle that delineation or, or that, uh, you know, do not, do not go beyond this point? What's beyond the pale? And, and that, that happens across technology and engineering, right? So, you know, in cycling, for instance, you know, the, what, is, what is the limit of it? Where can we take a bicycle to? What is acceptable? And what, what, what then becomes somehow non-competitive? Exactly. And, and, I, and overall, if the takeaway from the audience or, you know, whether that's sport or art is to be more critical, mm-hmm. maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. So um, picking up on this idea of the, 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 the role of the audience... Uh, previous listeners to the podcast will know that I talk quite a lot about um, uh, uh, the psychologist Chick Menzihai's uh, creative systems model for thinking about creativity. And we were having a little, little chat about this earlier on and you were challenging me, so I want to sort of go through this. Um, the, the, the systems model of creativity is that there are three elements to any creative system. The, um, there is the individual. Uh, who is being creative and, and, and remixing previous ideas and adding new elements and, and generating novelty of some sort. They're doing that in the context of an existing set of ideas, previous ideas, the domain of that person is working within, and that domain sits within a broader culture. And then you have a, a critical audience, which is saying that they could be the panel on a competition. They could be the people who like stuff on Facebook or Instagram. They are the people who are saying, yes, I like this, I accept it, and I'm going to now return it to the culture. So it's a sort of systematic type, type way. So in a sense, we were talking there about what does a very formal audience, like a photography panel, um, accept. But when we talked about this earlier on, uh, this jarred, this jarred with you as a model. I guess I stand between, um, you know, the two models. So in, in photojournalism, yes, I, I, I can relate to to your sort of triangular model there, that the audience were incredibly important because we're a service provider to to the audience's understanding of, of issues. So, so, for example, climate change. My job would be to, to try and explain um, that issue. But I think if we're moving over to art, which is, you know, I have I seem to have one foot in each, each of these disciplines now. I think with art, good art, would probably 
be a little bit more pushy and say, let's challenge the audience. Maybe the audience won't get this right now. Maybe they'll get it in five or ten years' time. Maybe the audience will walk away confused mm. or horrified or, you know, some kind of reaction. So it, I think it's different with photography, depending on what kind of photography photographer we are. Mm. And whether you are just trying to please or whether you're trying to challenge good art perhaps shouldn't shouldn't be pleasing and um going back to the to sort of the other side the other vertex of the of the triangle uh is the relationship with previous ideas and previous photography so do you have a do, do you keep a close eye on what other people are doing do you have sort of influences or do you have a sort of much do you take an inspiration from a sort of much broader field? It might be art. It might be. Um, it might actually just be walking around and seeing stuff and going, "Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way of looking at this. I want to bring it into my work." Uh, it would be really tempting to to lie and say, "I never look at other photographers' work. I take all my inspiration from life, and I, I just go and walk and I, I look at, I listen to you know Bach or." Um, Actually, I'm obsessed with my fellow photographer's work and I look at it every day. And I think most photographers, if they were honest, would, would perhaps say the same. You know, not least because we, we need to know what we can't repeat. Mm. Because if somebody went to the Arctic three weeks ago and made, you know, this story about icebergs, then I need to know about that. I can't repeat what somebody else has done with, with such... Uh, immediacy um, and, th and that's healthy that's healthy for you as an individual practitioner and that's, that's, that's healthy for the audience that's... well there's so much photography that some days it feels, <laughs> feels distinctly unhealthy but yeah I, I can see where you're going with that um, are there any are there any inspirations though for you which are sort of you know walking down the street listening to Bach I know you listen to a lot of jazz Yes, there, there are. I mean, it's hard to put my finger on them, but I think on a subliminal level, at least, I'm taking inspiration from so many ideas around me. I mean, for example, I use humour a lot in my work. And I think that I don't know where that's coming from. I mean, you know, a lot of that, maybe it just comes from being a Londoner in the Arctic. You know, what is this guy who was brought, in, brought up in northeast London doing in the Arctic? What is this guy who goes lindy hopping in between polar assignments doing here? What, what's this guy doing? What's he going to say? So, yeah, I, I think I take inspiration from many different, you know, quite, quite strange levels. I think it was in the Sherlock Holmes novels that, uh, well... The hero would uh, go to the go to a go to the theatre at the end of the day to uh, to not think about the the crime that he was trying to solve, and then you know during the intermission or on the way home he'd say ah got it, and may, maybe that's what the Lindy Hop and other things are providing you with. It's actually the the space to let your passive brain process. There's so. not many activities that involve you know, complete concentration of the mind to the degree that they fall apart. You know, they really unravel if concentration is lost. And I used to do uh, rock climbing 
still do a little bit but that, that was one such activity because if you're you're belaying your partner and you, you start thinking about you know how you're going to photograph some assignment the next day it could be could be lethal for your partner you have to you know you have to concentrate and likewise if you're lead climbing and you you know your mind wanders too much it's not going to be good and I think dancing is a yeah not it's not so deadly <laughs> if you forget well it depends where you do it <laughs> If you forget your count in the middle of a beautiful Basie song, your partner's going to be, you know, annoyed with you, but they're not going to, no one's going to die. So. But it does have the same kind of sensibility about it. It, it requires focused concentration, which, which is really nice because it can just strip, strip back and keep all the, you know, excessive thinking hmm. away. For, for two hours on a Thursday night in rainy London. I find it very meditative, actually. All those things I was thinking about before, I'm not thinking about them two hours later. They're, they're just gone. They've just been put to bed. Yeah, I, I sometimes I get about five hours respite, and then I, I, I come home at midnight and I go to bed, and then I wake up at you know five in the morning within my head. <laughs> have you ever done any? Have you ever done any swing dancing north of the Arctic Circle? Yes. Where's the I, best place to swing dance north of the Arctic I've, I've tried it. We've tried a few things. This, is, this has been a little um, side story. <clears throat> this has been a little side story of mine. So I've danced on a, a pitching, on the helicopter deck of a pitching icebreaker, um, you know, with sort of 30-degree rolls. Wow. Um, <laughs> and, of course, they coat, these, these decks are coated in uh, paint mixed with sand to be more grippy. Right. Okay. Which is really good if you're getting out of a helicopter at sea, or trying to launch a helicopter. Um, but for Lindy Hop, a sand-coated dance floor. I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> it's probably well. It, it it's intentionally engineered mm -hmm. to be the reverse of a slippery sprung dance floor. So that was quite interesting. I've danced on icebergs. I've danced on in a snowdrift on the top of Ben Nevis. Uh, in Antarctica, um, not in a penguin colony because that's against the the rules. But you what know, do they like? Do some... they prefer? Do, do they tango? Uh, <laughs> I think maybe it's a sort of a waltz that penguins do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think dancing in the wilderness, dancing in strange places, is a very nice way to have time out. Mm. Mm. Um. I want to turn to our last theme, which is practical philosophy. And um, well, I'll just start with the philosophy and then we'll move to the practical. But um, we're interested to know how you know, your work, what you photograph, what you go and you know, in, in, you're involved and immersed in uh, for great periods of time. Um, how has that changed your sort of outlook on the world or personal philosophy? I, I would suggest that you would you know, you'd be minded to be influenced by these things. Otherwise, you wouldn't. Be involved with them in the first place, but how maybe have you found yourself changing? Oh, it's it's hard to separate the changes that have come about through my work and going to these beautiful wild places, and the change that comes about through aging. I mean, it's it's quite, you know, because I've I've been doing this for for a little while, like nearly twenty five years. So in that time, I, you know, it spans a. Significant part of my my maturing process. 
it's kind of hard to separate which is which. Perhaps from the wilderness, I got a love of the planet. You know, it, it, I fell in love with the planet, which I may not have done to that degree. I mean, it, it can just reduce you to tears standing in these places. It's, it's completely humbling to see, you know, these wild animals and to see these big, big expanses of landscape, mountains and glaciers, sea ice floating on the Arctic Ocean. Incredible. And then to, to be actually be educated in those processes by the scientist I'm standing next to. Mm. But then life is situational and it's very easy and quick to get back in the mode of a different landscape. Mm. And, and how long do we carry these ideas? So if I come back to London, I, I, I'm here for a, a month, you know, catching up with my kids, doing a bit of DIY, maybe going out dancing. Does that stay with me? A little bit, but there's, there's a wonderful situational aspect to being human yeah. in that we are hardwired to relate to the landscape herein. Yes. We had to, to survive, so... But those are, those are some, some extremes from, you know, north-east London to North Pole. It's a massive extreme, and it, it, it does inform my work on a conscious and unconscious level, yeah. And then from a more uh, sort of the practical side of things, you know, you, you are somebody who is uh, working on your own a lot, obviously collaborating with people, but... Um, this is the for me these I'm always intrigued by people's life hacks you know how, how do they just make their life their crazy life work um, have you have, what have you what advice can you give other people about around leading a similar lifestyle um, being isolated and alone for too long is distinctly unhealthy um, I think there's a sweet spot to it where you where one can get some brilliant ideas and, and you know really go inwards and be creative but you can overcook that well I certainly have overcooked that and, and I've gone over into this space where yeah too much time on my own I mean I, and I guess dancing was, was, is a good foil for that because after four days of working at home and I haven't seen anybody except like the guy who came to read the gas meter um, to go out onto a dance floor and you know dance with 15 people uh, even if it's just to say hi, you know, how are you? What have you been up to? And then on to the next dance. Is it? It's enough to break out of this sort of isolated um, perspective, which is maybe not so healthy in 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 quantity. You uh, from previous conversations, I have a sense that you you know how you like to work. You like you said, you know, let's talk in the morning. I can't talk in the evening. You know, like, so clearly you must have a sort of pretty strong routine. Yeah, I mean, I guess it comes from trial and error. Like, like you, the example you just gave me, I came upon that by never being able to finish anything at, at 3.30 in the afternoon, looking back over 20, 25 years of idea-making mm. and realising that I'd never been able to come up with anything <laughs> after 2.30. So it, a lot of it is trial and error, just from failing, just from thinking, why haven't I come up with a good idea this month? Why are those pictures so goddamn bad? Why is that sequence so derivative? Why haven't I solved this? And, and then slowly 
trial and error, you know, solutions come about. And often they're just very minor tweaks to what I do, you know, the attenuation of how many people I see, how much time I spend alone, mm. where I go, how much sport activity I do. Mm. Um, you know, walking is famously good for creativity. Yeah. Um, and time of day is, is included in that, yeah. I'm, I'm, all my best ideas come around sort of 9.45, 9.48 a.m., half an hour after my first coffee. We're, yeah, we're over. We're over it now. So I think we have to. I'm gonna have to end this interview because Nick Cobbing is past his creative, creative well, moment. Well, if I can do one last question, which we'll see if I can uh, capture a last kind of vestiges of creativity for the day. Um, I just have this notion that uh, you know, we have great conversations about about jazz music, uh, and I'm interested to know, you know, what music do you like to listen to at sea? You know, when I, I first went to Lindy Hopping, I hated jazz and swing music. I thought it was really cheesy, and it was something that my... Actually, my great-uncle used to listen to Ella Fitzgerald and Basie, and he used to bring these records back, and I was like, just like, oh, God, you know, granddad, you know, this is not this is not me. And now I love it, and it's probably the dancing that exposed it to me long enough for me to give it a chance and a, a lot of culture is like that so yeah now I, I could quite happily put on you know Basie or Louie or Ella and it, it's good music for that it, it's quite freestyle it goes off in different directions which is a good good background for for good art fantastic Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. And I think we've already stretched your creativity for the morning to about 10.30. Yeah, I'm done now. I have, yeah. to, <clears throat> have to move on to, to more pedestrian things like accountancy and banking and chase up some invoices. But before we go, um, where can people find out more about you online? So the best place to come and find out about my work is my website. And that is at www.nickcobbing.com my name, dot com. Great. NickCobbing.com. We'll it's put, all there. And we'll put that link on the, on the show notes. You can find uh, more about this show. Well, it's available on, on the iTunes store. It's called the I Fell Overcast, E-I-F-F-E-L-O-V-E-R cast. That's two puns in one. Um, you can find me at ifellover.com, E-I-F-F-E-L-O-V-E-R.com, and also on Twitter. And we will post notes to this show, as I said, and you can find other episodes there. That's it from Nick, and that's it from me. Thank you. Until next time, take care. Thank you.